Um, would you open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3? It's on page 1047. I've said it now, but if I'm ever elected president of the country, uh, unified pagination of biblical scripture is going to be one of the first things on my agenda. While you're turning there on Friday, we had a really great miracle happen. We've been, we've been building a school in Haiti since I can remember, it seems like. Um, we bought this land, and you know the rules of capitalism seem to be suspended if you've been to this country <laughs> at the border. Like, doesn't, nothing makes sense. And, but there's this, we've already bought a piece of land. We've already spent 50000 but we wanted to buy the land next to it um, before we start construction, because the moment you start construction in a developing nation, the, the land prices skyrocket, and so... We're trying to, we've been trying to raise another 50000 um to get this other land so we can just finish the whole thing. Uh, $21,000 came in on Friday, just a, a real big miracle uh, offering that came in from some friends. So we're, we're, I think we're at 33000 now, so we're on our way to getting that done. We'll knock that out this week. Uh, this, well, yeah, how about I'll prophesy. We'll knock that out this week. <laughs> but the plan will be then to begin to build the school. Right now, we, we're just overflowing with children in Restoration Academy. There's almost 200 kids we're just stacking them wherever we can fit them right now. Kind of like Paige, high school, actually. Um, so hopefully we'll get that land finished and we can begin building in this next year. So I just wanted to celebrate Jesus with that. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This is a trustworthy saying, that whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. And then he says parenthetically, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? must not be a recent convert, verse 6. He may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must, not, uh, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. And they must keep hold of the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. And in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect and not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. And those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. And this is him talking about church leadership, but then he says, hey, to Timothy, uh, he's at Timothy's, Timothy's in Ephesus, and he's writing this letter to him there. It says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs, everything we just heard, from which true godliness springs, is great. As he appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up into 
glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask for your word to be a life for us today, the lifeline, the lamp, the light that you promised it to be, not some academic exercise, but a supernatural word from you that speaks to us, that tills up our heart and allows the seeds to grow. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I, uh, I brought with you the, me this morning, this is China that is from my mother. My mom is, uh, will be celebrating her 10th anniversary in heaven this year. And when she uh, passed on, one of the things that she left for us was this china that actually came to her from her father uh, from Germany in between the World War II and the Korean War. This was all, and it just sat in our cupboards, and we weren't allowed to touch it, uh, breathe near it. Um, on occasion, when something really, really fancy was happening, we'd bring it out, and, and then we'd put it away, and then we ate on paper plates the rest of the year, because my mother <laughs> did not like to do dishes. Can I get an amen? <laughs> this has a very special value to us, and it's been sitting in our own closet now, and we on occasion will use it, and it just sits in a, in a closet. But when you look at it, you think, man, this is so valuable, so precious. Why would Darren do this? Grandma! <laughs> and the reason I would do that is that this actually came from Marshall's yesterday and it was five bucks. <laughs> Looks the same though, don't it? You all winced and thought that is the worst son ever. Because we all know that some things are more valuable than others based upon stuff that really has nothing to do with appearance and everything to do with the character. They got them there. There's a story that that comes along with this. This is probably, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's made of the same stuff, I don't know. But I know that this is more valuable to me because of how it got to me, because of a price that was paid, because of a trip that was made, and it brought it all the way to here this morning. And when I look at this scripture, Paul says to these folks here, this is how you are to conduct yourself in the house of God. Not the house like this building here. I know maybe some of you, when I say that, you're, it evokes images of the Nazarene church as a child and someone screaming, don't wear your hat in the house of God. Don't run. In the, this is God's house. No. That's not what he was talking about. When he uses the word household, he uses it again in Ephesians, the word household, actually speaking of the household of their family. Talking about the mother, the father, the children. It's a family phrase that he's talking about. This is the household. So how do we conduct ourselves in the house of God? And this could easily become and has for years, for many places, a sermon on church leadership and polity and government and all those things. And it certainly does say that these are requirements, that these are things that you would see in someone who is a leader in a church. So it can't mean less than that. But I believe that it means so much more than that. That this isn't necessarily like, okay, I'm an Eagle Scout and an Eagle Scout, so you tie this knot and now you get to the next level or we're in a video game, you know, you unlock this, you get to the next machine gun, camo, whatever, you know. This isn't, right, Connor? You know what I'm saying? This isn't that. This, is, this isn't even like Liam Neeson, I have a particular set of skills.
This is a biblical definition, a description of godliness and holiness and what that would look like in someone's life. What did we talk about last week? That godliness and holiness, that your conscience calibrated to the word of God points you like a compass towards godliness and holiness. And what godliness and holiness looks like is actually this is not, uh, this is more you than you've ever been. This is not you eschewing yourself. This is you stepping into the identity that Jesus bought and paid for for you. This is Christian character. Divine work of art is what C.S. Lewis says that we're being made into. He says that, uh, this is from mere Christianity, uh, we are a divine work of art, something that God is making, something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. He, he would talk about, uh, Paul would talk about in 2 Timothy about there, there are vessels of honor and dishonor. There's different types of vessels, and there's this idea that we're being made from one thing into another thing. This table was a pile of wood, and now it's a table made from one thing into another thing. This is what he's making us into, this character of who we are. Uh, C.S. Lewis would go on to say, we might think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, whereas what he really wants is people of a particular sort. He's making us into something. And in this passage, there's three things. There's what Christian character looks like, and it is different than regular Aristotle, Plato kind of character. There's Christian character, what it looks like, there is why that's important to us and where it comes from. What Christian character looks like, verse 15, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. How do we conduct ourselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God? How do we act when we're in God's house, God's family? Have you ever been told, act like you've been there? We used to tell when I was managing artists and it'd be a brand new artist and they were young and you'd go to like the big award show. Like, don't run around looking like a bunch of tourists. Act like you've been there. Google-eyed and taking pictures. No, no, act like you've been there. Well, it was just a, it's been a while back. My wife and I were invited to the party of a, a new client of mine, Dino Kartsonakis. Any of Dino fans? No, this is Nashville, I gotta ask. Anybody know Dino real quick? Okay, a couple of you. I mean, like, know him, know him. Like, got his phone number, know him. Because I'm going to need you not to call him. Um, <laughs> Dino, <laughs> Dino in the 90s, we had done a deal with him in Branson, and it was glorious. I mean, like, piano coming out of the ceiling. And, and one, these are wonderful human beings. So Dino and Cheryl had invited uh, Darren and Shannon to a Christmas party at their home. And this was a, an annual thing, and it was kind of infamous in the community. And Dino's home, when you came into the driveway, I, honestly, I don't know where they live now, but back then you pulled in, and there was a huge fountain, and in the fountain were these bronze statues of stallions in running poses. And so the minute we pull in, I'm like, oh, whoa, we are out of our league at this point. I mean, I'm booking rock bands, for crying out loud. So I'm pulling in. And we walk in the door, and they're so lovely, and they invite us in, and they have uh, these pastries from this chef that they've flown in from Europe. Like, I, like a trip to Puffy Muffin, you know what I mean? Like, but, but they flew them from Europe. There's door prizes, which were money trees. that had like $500 on them and a random drawing for all these money trees. I'm like, man, we are out of our league. And, and you know how you've been to some parties? Maybe you haven't been, but you're eating food that you don't know what is. And it tastes amazing, so you just don't want to know, just in case. Because let's be honest, if you're a rich folk, you eat some weird stuff. Eggs from a fish? For crying out loud. It's bait. That's not food. So the food is, 
been served, and, and, and we get to the moment of the white elephant gift exchange. So we're in the circle, and it's Dino's mom, who's like 100, and feisty, and brothers-in-law, and a couple of uh, my colleagues, and, and Shannon and I. And we're, this is our first time to the party. And so the first gets the, you know, white elephant gift exchange works. So the first person goes and gets the, the prize out, from, or the present from the tree, and pull, opens it up, and it's a DVD player. It's 1998 or nine. Like those, they're like $300 back then. So I'm thinking, well, that's not how we do <laughs> white elephant gifts where I'm from. And the next one is like, like a crate and barrel frame or something. Like, and I was thinking, oh, until I realized it was like a $100 frame. Like at Walmart, you know, they're selling them for like five bucks, but apparently crate and barrel, they're like a hundred. So the next gift opens and it's like a coffee mug with a Larry the Cucumber in it. I'm thinking, oh, thank Jesus. Because they're going to know, you know, if, if this is... And so Gary McSpadden, I shouldn't be saying names in Nashville. Gary's a wonderful human. Gary says, no, no, look under the, look under the cucumber. And there's like a crisp, brand new $100 bill. So when they finally get to our gifts, which is a leather... It was pretty nice, I thought. WWF wrestling wallet with chain. <laughs> and a box of sea monkeys. <laughs> Darren and Shannon, did, how do you act like you've been there if you ain't been there? I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know how to act in the house of Dino and Cheryl. And and the trouble was, is I figured it out, but we never got invited back, so I don't know <laughs> that it really mattered. And by the way, here's how you act in the house of Dino and Cheryl. Dino and Cheryl took the box of sea monkeys and leather wallet so that they would be the ones stuck with this prize, so that, so that mama got the DVD player and the, all this. Anyway, so that's how you act, is giving and, and, and kind and, and sheriff. And I'm looking at this thinking, how do you know what character is if you don't know what character is? Like, how do I know how to act in the house of God if I, don't, if I ain't been there before? The book of 1 Timothy, which was a letter to Paul, the whole thing, all the chapters, is a good outline. This is why he wrote this letter, how we can act and conduct ourselves in the house of God. And he describes it here as how you conduct yourself, but it's really about our character, about who we are, who we are becoming. Uh, I think it was D.L. Moody that said, um, the Christian character is who you are in the dark when nobody's watching. Not just what you pretend to be, but when it all, you know, when you squish the toothpaste tube like you talked about earlier, what comes out, that's what was in there. And so Christian character, that is something that's formed inside of you. Paul would say to the church at Ephesus that Christian character, chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, I'll read it, you can go there later, this is the message version. He says that, take on an entirely new way of life, a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. Godliness and holiness is the result of us allowing our conscience to be the compass leading us into where God would want us to, a calibrated conscience, calibrated to the word. And so the result of it is going to look like these verses in 1 Timothy, and it looks like it over a span of time. It's not like just a decision you make. N.T. Wright says that 
Uh, and if you're looking for a good book on this, N.T. Wright's After You Believe on Christian Character is absolutely phenomenal. There's some stuff that uh, Wright would believe about Paul and things that I, I wouldn't necessarily, but this book is spot on when it comes to what character is. And he says, it's the transforming, shaping, and marking of a life and its habits will generate the sort of behavior that rules might have pointed toward, but which a rule-keeping mentality can never achieve. And it will produce the sort of life which will in fact be true to itself, though the self to which it will at last be true is the redeemed self, the transformed self, not the merely discovered self of popular thought. A.W. Tozier, as he always does, sums it up really nicely when he says that because we live in a moral universe, because this is a moral universe, character, which is the excellence of moral beings, is naturally paramount as the excellence of steel is strength, as the excellence of art is beauty, so the excellence of mankind is moral character. That's the essence of who we are. And he would go on to, in his later writings, say that relationships between moral beings is by confidence, and confidence rests upon character, which is a guarantee of conduct. To put this differently, someone who has been sued for slander. The slander is because it impugns their character unfairly. Because there's a value in their character. So there's a monetary value that can be attached if someone has lied about you and it has harmed your business. What we've seen in the world just these past few months is men of poor and low character whose lives have rightfully so been harmed financially because of bad character. There is a value to character. It isn't just some ethereal thing. It is who we are at the core, who we are when the lights are off, who we are when the pressure is on. It's what comes out. Character is what people can expect out of you. It, I, I, when it talks about your confidence, I, I know if I'm going to ask somebody to do something by their character, there are certain things I wouldn't ask somebody to do if I knew their character wasn't there yet. And it isn't as simple as just a checklist and we're going to see why in a minute. This is a great list of saying, hey, this is what you're becoming. This is who God, you, you, the truest you is this. But character, it's almost like defining beauty. It's there, and you know it when you see it. And you can confirm it with others. But to just relegate it to just a checklist is like making your art about numbers, about your music just by numbers on a chart. It's so much deeper, more beautiful than that. And why that's important is the question. Why is Christian character what matters? It's different than Aristotle's character. Aristotle, 350 years before Jesus came on the scene, began what is now the seeds of Western thought, and he said character were these four things, and it's courage and justice, and that, there's two others. And, 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 and Aristotle's version of character was that you work really, really, really hard on yourself. And eventually, you can do these things, like practicing at the Olympics, like practicing a sport. And so Jesus comes along 350 years later and turns it all on its head when he says the character... Blessed are the poor, the, the, the Beatitudes. He begins to spell out what a godlike character is. He begins to show us that it's not just some lonely life of someone trying to do this and then you're gone. Godly character is formed 
as glad citizens of God's coming kingdom, working not by ourselves, not alone, but with Jesus working in us, on us, and through us, setting us up for eternity, not just to be a bottle rocket that's here and gone. And that matters. And here's why. In God's household, which is the church of the living God, verse 15, the pillar and the foundation of truth. He says that we, you and I, as the church, get the privilege of being the foundation and the pillar of truth. And in our own lives personally, this matters. I've sat down across the table from people who have made bad decisions in their marriage. The decision didn't start the day that the affair started. It started long before that. A thousand small decisions that led to that. And by the time they're there, and I ask a very simple question. It's one of the very first questions I've, had, I've asked in these situations, and I've had a few of them over the years. What about the children? What about, I'm already gone. I'm in love with him. I'm in love with her. What about the children? And the fact of the matter is, is they're not thinking about the children because that's long gone. Every little decision that you've made over your lifetime leads you towards godly character or away from godly character. Towards godliness, away from godliness. Modern science is actually playing this out, by the way. How many of you have been to London? Have you been in a cab in London? London cab drivers have a higher standard than what we do. They have to know the streets, with or without Surrey, with or without Google Maps. They have to know. And if you've been to London, you know it ain't like the grid system of Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's like somebody just dumped a bunch of roads. And you know what they've figured out? They've studied in these cab drivers that their hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that memorizes this stuff, is actually physically larger than a normal one. Because their brain changed. Every decision, everything. It's, this science is somewhat new on this, of opening neuropathways. So when you make a little decision to cheat on your taxes, hello. When you made a little decision to fudge this number or that, it opens a new neural pathway that makes it easier the next time. The Bible calls it a seared conscience. And all that science is doing is proving what God said long ago, that the way that you're transformed is not by trying harder, it's by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12. Opening new pathways, renewing your mind. There's a literal physical change that happens in those. And when your personal choices, those things matter in the moments, and I would say more so than when everybody's looking, when nobody's looking, making those decisions now, and it's a thousand of them in a row that result in this character over time. And it's not just in your personal life, it is, and we could talk way, way more about it. But in society, if the church is to be the bulwark, which is one of the translations, the New English translation says, the bulwark, which is that we are the, the barricade of truth in our society, The secular world says that the media is that. that that's what journalists are supposed to be. The, the movie The Post that's out right now. It's a, I haven't seen it yet, but I know the story. And the idea is that the journalists told the truth and they spoke the truth to power. And so in the world, in the secular world, the truth, the bulwark of truth, are journalists. Now the problem with that is that when it's the journalists who are viewing a secular version of truth, their truth is... To thine own self be true, in the words of Shakespeare. 
to thine own self be true. And so if it's really about your truth and about my truth, then what these people who are supposed to be protecting us from lies in media are going to release articles saying that it is a good thing for a husband to have an affair from time to time. That was on the homepage of CNN. They didn't even have the decency to bury that in the back. When your version of truth is your, to thine own self be true, when your truth is that I want to have an affair because that's who I am, people's lives are on the line. To thine own self be true. If that is the catechism of our time, the, the doctrine of our Western society, it is leading people into broken hearts, to broken dreams, and the media and journalists with a secular mindset can say it's true all day long, but I've sat down across the table from too many, and I know better. And you do too, at the core of who you are, you know better. In the 60s, the sexual revolution was, some of you are old enough to remember that. I'm actually not, but I'm close. <laughs> was that free love, everybody, you know, hippies, and, but everybody, if it's just, which by the way, this is just a modern version of that. But what happened by the time the 70s rolled around was the bills came due on the promises of free love and they were bankrupt. The broken hearts and the broken dreams and the people birthed from that movement a revival that is still felt to this day in the 70s. Came out of Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California, a bunch of Jesus people getting baptized who were like that. I don't know who I am, but that didn't work. That was a lie, and they found Jesus. And I believe with all of my heart that right now the world is crying out for one thing and one thing only, Truth. Hashtag fake news. I want the truth. I just, I can't figure out if this is true or if that is true. And I, and I got to tell you, as a church, that's the thing we got. <laughs> There's a lot of things we don't have, but the truth, we kind of got the corner on that one because we are the ones who serve the guy who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And let me give you some good news because we hear so much bad news. This just was reported in uh, Scientific uh, American, I think is where this... Now this is, uh, let me, actually, you know, I didn't give you, I don't have a link for this one. You're going to have to trust me. I'll post the link later. There's an article from just this week that's talking about Harvard research that suggests and says that Christianity in America is not shrinking. It's actually growing stronger. And here's what this article says. It opens up. Uh, with a, talking about this article that was just in The Atlantic that says, and he's basically quoting this article from The Atlantic where the guy says, meanwhile, a widespread decline in church-going and religi religious affiliation has contributed to a growing anxiety among conservative believers. And the author says, statements like this are uttered with such confidence and frequency that most Americans accept them as uncontested truisms. This one emerged just this month in an exceedingly silly article in The Atlantic on Vice President Mike Pence. And the author goes on to talk about the research, saying that not only did their examination find no support for this secularization in terms of actual practice and belief, the researchers proclaim that religion continues to enjoy, quote, persistent and exceptional intensity in America. These researchers hold our nation, quote, remains an exceptional outlier and potential counterexample to the secularization thesis, unquote. 
And then goes on, he ends the article by saying, mainline churches, speaking of many of the things that you've seen, mainline denominational churches are tanking as if they have a supersized millstone around their neck. Yes, these churches are hemorrhaging members in startling numbers, but many of those folks are not leaving Christianity. They are simply going elsewhere. And because of this shifting, other very different kinds of churches are holding strong in crowds and have been for as long as such data has been collected. In some ways, they are even growing. This is what the research has found. The mainline denominations that are watering down the truth, that are beginning to marry society and use society as it, they are dying and as they should. Because the logical conclusion is, if I can't trust this, let's go home. Like, we're done. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, you know, we can go mow our lawns and hang out with those in our neighborhood that are doing that right now. But that's not what happened. Jesus did rise from the dead, and it is true. And because of that, I believe that a revival is already happening in our country of people who have come to hear this idea that your truth and my truth, and they're figuring out for 30 years that relative moralism doesn't work. It's bankrupt. The bills are due. There's no money in the account. Now where do I go? And I want us, and there are other churches in our community who are holding firm to the truth. To our friends at the bridge and Spring Hill, to our friends up the street at Gateway, to our friends in Grace Chapel that are holding to this as the bulwark of truth. These churches are growing. And I want to make more room, not just for us who are hungry for truth, but for the world that is starving for it right now. And they need a place And they need to be welcomed. They need to not be shamed. They need to know that this is the truth, but that we are accepting him in exactly the way that this is laid out with not quarrelsome, but lovingly, gentle, and with truth. And I believe with all my heart that churches that are holding on to that, that are already experiencing it, will continue to experience it because we are the bulwark of truth. We are the pillar. And what the awesome thing about this truth for us is that, look, Have you ever thought, like, I'm just saved. I can just punch a clock and then tag back in once I die. What do you do after you believe if you're saved by grace? And I want you to know that with all my heart, I believe that that is exactly how we are saved. Salvation is Jesus plus nothing. But to become a pillar in the truth, a pillar of truth in the house of God, we're starting now to be this bulwark of truth in our society. And he says in Revelation 3 that those who overcome, he will make pillars in the house of God. That there is a reason that we stand for this now, that after you believe, we get to become these models of character. Because the truth is, teenagers, especially, when you're holding out to these standards of purity, your friends are going to say things like, well, you think you're better than me? And it's a lonely journey. But let me tell you, when their bills come due, when their relationship didn't pay off, They're going to go to somebody. And you know who they go to? They go to the one that they remembered, that didn't fall, that was had character, because they know they can count on you. You become the pillar of truth. And the earlier you start on that, the easier it is. It matters. It matters to your children. It matters to your friends. It matters to our society. Now the question is, where does it come from? Because just trying to obey the rules, in the words of the great poet, Dr. Phil, How's that working out for you? He says, verse 16, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, 
was seen by angels and preached among the nations, was believed on in the world and taken up into glory. The true godliness springs not from trying harder, but from believing in Jesus. The promise that we read in Ephesians that he is working out his nature in you, his character in you. And Romans 5 says it this way. What are the tools that he would use to, to build that character in us? Romans 5, verse 1, you could read it. I'll read it. You can go there later. I don't have it up here. Therefore, having been justified by faith, I want to be crystal clear, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. Isn't it just such great news? And not only that, he says, verse 3, but we also glory in tribulations. What? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope that doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Jesus has made you positionally holy and righteous the moment you believed. One day you will be made righteous perfectly, and the journey from now until then is a journey of you working out this stuff that has come along, the neural pathways or the emotional, whatever you want to call it, allowing that stuff to be chopped away. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword between the what? The soul and the spirit. Some of the work he's doing is in your soul. A lot of times we think spirituality is about adding on to. It's really about cutting stuff away that we've added on ourselves. And ultimately, the journey to true godliness is really a journey of you, as N.T. Wright says, becoming the truest you that you could ever be. You who Christ created you to be. To thine own self be true, meaning the self that Jesus has created. So if Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy, talk about vessels of honor and dishonor in the house of a large house. There's going to be Good, and by the way, when he talks about vessels of dishonor, for those of you that have been in a developing country that doesn't have running water, you know what the vessel of dishonor is, don't you? Someone's got to take the bucket outside. The moment you believe you've been made into this vessel, you are being transformed from a vessel of dishonor to honor. Why on earth would you take this into the toilet? It's because you don't know who you are. I believe that your behavior is an outlier of character inside of you, but the character of who you are is you remembering who God has created and turned you into and then living it out. You are not a quarrelsome person. You are not an angry person. You are not a drunk. You are not a loose person. You are not someone who sleeps around. That's not who you are. And when you act out in that way, it's because you've forgotten who you are. That little house in Haiti, those little 14 little girls, there was a little boy there before named Jackson. And one of these days, he's going to be here in America. He's being adopted by a, a family here. And Jackson, when he was first brought in there, some of you remember this story. At three years old, he was homeless. His parents had dropped him off right after the earthquake. And he was living in Restoration House, and Mike and Kathy's son, Ben, was down there. And Ben was calling me like, dude, he stole my Bose headphones. He's stealing all my stuff. <laughs> He's eating my food. He's, he's making phone calls to America. Like he's just, you know. And it's funny, but it was kind of a problem because we have visitors down there and Jackson keeps taking their stuff. 
And when we talked with the house parents about it, there was a conversation. We should kick him out because he's just causing too many problems. And the house parents at the time said, no, 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 no. We can't. You see, he's not a street kid anymore. He just doesn't know it. He has forgotten who he is. He needs to be here long enough to remember who he is. And I would dare say that those of you who are a new creation in Christ, behold, all things are passed away. If you are in the middle of an affair with someone who is not your spouse, stop it. It's not who you are. If you are abusing your spouse, stop it. That's not who you are. Step into the identity. And there are those of you who read a list like that in verse 1 through 13 and think, well, I'm already disqualified because I did this when I was younger and I... Our culture idolizes youth. We put 25-year-olds in, in charge of churches of 5,000 people. How did you think that was going to work out? I'm 46. I barely got it figured out. You know what the word elder means in the Bible? Old person. I might need Dr. Bassanio to exegete that better for me, but that is just old people. Because you've been there and you know what it is. Any of you got a real leather bag that you just love, that you've had it forever? Jamie, it's worn down, isn't it? But isn't it? It's yours. And you know what you say it has? It has character. character. Phyllis, you have character. <laughs> if you don't believe it, read your book. It's on sale right now. Amazon.com? My question is, is that you start at 100 points and then you just get deducted down from there and you, anybody that you have to score 100 to get to be this position of leadership in a church or is that just missing the whole point and saying that our journey is from being a pile of wood to a table that is useful in the house of God? Is it from saying, I want to, I'm not an honor, <laughs> dishonorable vessel and I'm going to, for this period of my life, like D.L. Moody said, what I, character is what you do in the dark. I'm going to be this whether the light is on or whether the light is off, whether anybody knows about it or whether anybody doesn't. I'm going to be who God created me to be. Not like an Eagle Scout and I can tie this knot and I automatically get to be the elder or the deacon. That is completely missing the point. It's saying that Jesus starts with a score of 100 and he invites you to allow him to transform you by the renewing of your mind. Does this make sense? Okay, well, stand to your feet and let's pray. I've often said, and I wish I could remember who said it first, because I totally give him credit, but I just can't remember, that a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone whose life is not. Amen. Let this guide your conscience. Let this calibrate your conscience into godliness and holiness. We see where we're going. We see the journey of where it is. Allow God to be, man, it takes a long time, but you know what? Love is patient. Love is kind. And your goal isn't just to aspire to be some, get some job title. And a, your job is getting to allow the Father to come in and do the work on your heart, and you partner up with him. Not as some lonely individual, but as a glad citizen of God's coming kingdom. That's who you are. Remind yourself this week, Jesus, we give you the praise and the glory and the honor for what you have done in our lives. 
And Lord, for those of us that don't know who we are, would you show us this week, begin to believe that that's who I am. I'm not this, what the enemy has done. I'm not what my parents did. I am who you say I am. And to step into that identity this week, Lord. And there are those of us who need to repent, to change our mind about this and to believe what you've said about it. And we start with that today and stepping into the identity that you have for us. Just like Jackson, we're so grateful you didn't kick us out of the household of God. So grateful for you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.